Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Thank you for joining us again. I mentioned last week that uh, this was a special because, I mean, is today's episode about work culture? I don't really know. It's certainly about work. I've got a few people who've got interesting work stories and over the last few months while I've been chatting to various people I've gathered these sort of fascinating stories about reinventing careers reinventing lives and I've put three of them here so it's a slightly longer listen very suited to a long drive a relaxing bath maybe a walk into town maybe if you need to clean out that cupboard you could whack it on on your phone Maybe you've had a glass of wine too many. You could lay it on the bedside cabinet next to you. Let me haunt your drunk sleep. I'm going to throw in some positive messages as well to make you believe in yourself more. I've grouped them together. And what are they about? Well, these are three stories about changing your careers. Maybe if you're in Britain, you're enjoying the the Whitson holiday. I'm not sure it's Whitson anymore, largely because no one in Britain knows what Whitson is. But it's this sort of lame May bank holiday. So you might be off enjoying that in the sunshine and reflecting on your life. May these episodes be the stimulus you need. Let me talk you through who we've got today. Paul Coleman is a classic example of portfolio living. He combines working at his own innovation company with writing TV comedy. He he wrote the acclaimed TV sitcom Car Share featuring Peter Kay. Martin Morales left a career in music, leaving companies like iTunes and Disney behind to go and set up Ceviche, the acclaimed restaurant. And Lisa Unwin is the joint founder of She's Back, which is half campaigning and half a, a company dedicated to get mums back to work. Let's start with Martin. It's a, it's a long discussion I had with Martin. We talk about restaurants as a place of culture. We talk about how he quit his job to try and find happiness doing what he was interested in. He left a, a career behind as the most senior person for iTunes in Europe. He, he was at Disney Music and he went to set up his own restaurant following the passion for the things he loved. I went down to chat to Martin in his latest, his new restaurant, which is called Casina and Dina. And we chat about his backstory, career restarts, the perils of capitalism. Martin's a real inspiration for the power of of great work and dreaming. To kick us off, I asked Martin if he'd give us his backstory. Yeah, I I mean, I was born in Lima, in Peru. My, My grandmother was from the Andes, so I've got roots in the Andes as well. So in a way, I was, I always had this 
uh, sorry, and on top of that, my father was English. So there was this, you know, almost a triple kind of cultural background. One's very Andean and indigenous. One's very urban and Lima and Creole. And one's from Leicester, <laughs> from the Midlands, from, in from England. Um, so those three regions have always played an important part uh, in Britain, you know, England, uh, Lima and the Andes. And so I grew up with that fusion, that fusion in Lima as a child, uh, in a backdrop of, uh, of, a, of a very funky city in positive and negative ways. Positive, great food, great drinks, great beach life, great family, great love from friends and family and great vibes and busy environment, but, but negative because Peru was going through chaos at the time. Shining path guerrilla movement, just a lot of crime, a lot of uncertainty, political corruption, it, it, you know, a lot of theft going on in houses and people being, you know, it was just, it was, it was tough. It was almost civil war going on in the streets of Lima and around the country. My, my dad received a letter from the Shining Path guerrilla movement uh, when I was 11. He worked for an American company, he was white, he was English, and uh, they opposed the type of person that he was and the type of organizations he worked for. Um, his ideology, I guess, um, even though he's, you know, he's always been politically agnostic and and um, just just been a humanitarian, mostly as as I am. But uh, but we were found found in that situation, uh, and at the same time, also unfortunately, my my mother uh, left. Uh, she went off with somebody else. So my father just said, we, you know, I think it would be safer for us and and better for us, more stable for us as a family, myself, my sister, and my dad to go to, to England. And we'd never lived in, in England. I'd visited to see grandparents in Leicestershire um, every couple of years. So I've been, I had been to England a couple of times in my 11 years at the time. But there I was, I found myself in Leicester for the first time, actually in a place called Colville, um, on the outskirts of Leicester, 10, 15 miles away from Leicester, a very um, working class mining town where Thatcher had closed all the mines where there was a lot of pissed off people, unemployed, that had never seen a little brown boy from Peru. And they were pretty angry. So that was, that was very hard, because I suffered from, from racism. For a year in Colville, uh, I went to local school there, and you know, although I'm grateful for, for, for every moment of my life, that, that moment you know, was a real wake-up call that, that, that kind of made me grow up very, very quickly. First of all, leaving my mother, whom I loved, but whom had committed a pretty tough error in her life and our lives. You know, tough because, you know, we were running away and away from violence, but also tough because I'd landed think, thinking, right, I'm going to be in a safe place and I'm going to be in a country that totally, um, totally welcome, you know, is a peaceful country that where, where I can be safe and walk the streets and be safe. There to be greeted by racial abuse, uh, stones being thrown at me, every name under the sun, related to Africa and Asia and everywhere else and sheer ignorance to, to a young, sweet, you know, uh, mummy's boy that just turns up there was, was really tough. Uh, physical, emotional abuse, etc. So it was, it was tough that first year, it was very tough and I, I think I grew up five or six years just in that one year. And the next part of your story that I, I saw that sort of transplants you probably eight, ten years on, is you said when you were at college, 
you ran these these nights. It's hard to quite visualise them, but you ran these nights that combined you DJing with cooking food. I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to see the kitchen setup that's got turntables and yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I, it was called the Global Kitchen, and I would DJ and cook at the same time. You see, you know, out of the darkness that was those that first year in Colville, you know, I the story turns into a happy one you know I um, I went to a, a Catholic school after that in Loughborough um, I discovered my real love for music my love for art my love for creativity uh, my love for cooking was always there from the age of nine but I kind of cooked more for friends for family etc and by the time I got to university in Leeds you know I, I, I'd started to DJ um, I started to work as a barman, I started to do... But I sort of started to create events as well. I, I had a, an event, a, a jam session with Cuban music and Brazilian capoeira and you know, I started to play music from around the world and cook food from around the world. I guess this, this kind of uh, sort of um, focus on, 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 on rock music and on Britishness and Americanness, I just thought Actually, my roots are from South America, and I, I relate more to Africa, South America, and even Asia than I do, in a way, to Britain. Although I, I, I love Britain, you know, I love Britain at that at that time as well. But I wanted, I thought that there's something beautiful in in other parts of the world. Let's let's create something with that. Let's do something with that. I guess it was it was artistic and cultural at the same time, uh, and I felt very strongly about it. And and so that's why I did these these events, and one of them. And one of them was the Global Kitchen, you know, as I said, where I would call myself DJ Chef. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd play sizzling beats and, and hot tunes and, you know, uh, fry up some, some great uh, music, you know, use all these references that are food and music related, but also serve great food. <laughs> Did it work? I mean, like... Yeah, you... people loved it. I mean, it was very ad hoc and it was a lot of fun, but it included all those things that I love, you know. I love being around people, I love entertaining people, I love making people feel great, you know, giving people a new experience that they've never had before, giving people a memorable experience, using music and food and art and culture in a positive way to uplift people, bringing the colour of, of other parts of the world into, into, into a rainy Yorkshire day, which is you know, where I was at the time. And tell me this, you were then working in music, sort of dream job working worked at iTunes that you you worked at Disney what made you leave a career and a sort of you know a, a wage to go and set up your own restaurants you know I had a career of probably about 18 years working for different record companies starting making the tea to kind of running them and then music companies and then working in tech with with Apple at, at iTunes and, and then working in this, this this gigantic company called Disney with you know managing the music business there and uh, you know, I, I loved it all. It was all very varied. And every time I climbed the ladder of corporate, whatever, and, and every time there was new challenges, but, but they kind of became similar as, as I grew. And I, be, I felt like I was solving the same challenges every time, just in a different organization. And I just found that after a while, slightly unchallenging. I also found you know, at my last workplace, um, which is at Disney, I, I found a very, very tough corporate environment, which was not focused on 
completely on the day-to-day, it was not focused on the customer. And I wanted to be close to customer, understand customer, and actually give customer something that's cutting edge, something that's cool, something that's stylish, something that's incredibly positive. Although, you know, Disney was incredibly positive, but I also wanted to bring them something that I knew and was really passionate about. I guess through my career, I've, I've worked on things that I've been truly passionate about and felt. But then sometimes, because of various reasons, and I think that might happen to a lot of your listeners, you know, you get seduced by either money or by position or by a challenge that you think was the, was the challenge, but it really wasn't. By ambition, you know, by some kind of naked ambition without really thinking that through. And so when they give you a role like the one I had at Disney or even at Apple, and they say, you're going to do this really gigantic role and there's some really great, great salary. You think, wow, that's just amazing. I've made it and blah, blah. You sort of, it's sort of like what you've always dreamt for. But when you get there, it's, it's not, something happens and you sort of realize that those things are not quite so important, especially when you look at yourself deep down and you think, am I truly, truly enjoying this? Because I found out as well that it is, this thing that we call life is all about the journey. The, the, the finish line whether it's winning an award or, or getting a hit record or, or, you know, one day you get five stars in a review for your restaurant or you get some, you know, an AA rosette. That, that day when that happens, you know, I work very, very hard to achieve those milestones like many of your listeners might as well. And I've achieved some of those. I've had all those things. But that day is an absolute anticlimax, I can tell you. The cool stuff, the fun stuff, the happy stuff is how you get there. The people you're with and the stuff that you're doing in the, in the seconds leading up to that. Not even the minutes or hours, in the seconds. I just, I, just, I just thought, how can I fill those seconds with absolute joy for as much as possible? I just thought, work backwards, Martin. What do you truly love? I love food, I love cooking, I love people, I've always wanted to have my own restaurants, I love Peru, I love London, I love media, I love talking and communicating, I love music, I love art, I love those things from Peru as well. How can I bring all those things together? And Steve Jobs used to say, trust that the dots will join in future. I worked for him, I worked at his company, And I believed in that, and that's what I did in 2009. I sort of thought, Peru, food, music, art, culture, charity, experiences, let's bring all that stuff together and let's show this city of London and the UK and wherever how beautiful our country is. Um, And that's the moment where I just thought, I've got to do this. I've only got one life. I was about 37 at the time. Um, feeling fit, feeling healthy, happily married with kids. But I just thought, just go for it. Just just go for it. And my wife just said, look, I've known you since you were 80, you know, 21, sorry. I've seen you start from the very bottom. All we've got to do is to be happy and contented, you know. And let's just do what we what we love. And, and is the culture of your restaurants, as well as the cuisine and the ambience, is that something you think about? Because for me, restaurants are a fascinating place where you feel like you're inside the culture of an organisation. You know, if an if a restaurant's got a bad culture or is is fiercely hierarchical, or if everyone's scared of the boss, it's it feels tangible when you're in there. So, is culture something that you consciously think about? 100%. A restaurant 
such as the one we're sitting in right now. This is Casita Andina in the middle of Soho. We opened six months ago and we've we've won our first AA Rosette Award and won and had fantastic reviews. And it's a it's it's a restaurant focused on the cuisine of Cusco, just a regional cuisine in the Andes of Peru. The Andes of Peru, here in the middle of Soho. Who would have thought it? But it's a safe haven. It's a little house. It's decorated with with textiles that we've designed with indigenous um, weavers from from a village called Patacancha in the Andes of Peru. It features artwork on the wall that is beautiful paintings showing the textile culture of, 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 of Peru that dates back thousands of years, contemporary art, crafts from Peru, all of which I've actually worked with the, these different um, people, contemporary artists and and craftspeople in Peru to bring here. So yes, this is very, very personal to me, and it's very personal, I think, for anyone that comes to a restaurant. A restaurant is like someone's home, especially when they're they're a small independent restaurant like we are. We like to create these beautiful places that are completely and utterly welcoming. We don't create restaurant shopping centers. Now those are corporate restaurants, those are bigger restaurants. They're made for mass consumption, they're made for pure convenience they're made to grab your money quick and get you out quick we don't think like that we you know these are you know they these are not heavy on culture they're just heavy on love and on on fun and on entertainment on on making you feel great you know you're taking your time to kind of come into to a place that you know could be like your home or my home and so I, as a as a chef and restauranter, I truly respect that and appreciate that, and I'm so grateful. So, I'm going to take care. We're going to take care of you the minute you walk in, give you so much care and attention. And then there's the most sacred thing of all, and I use the word sacred because I I kind of think it's the best word, and not many chefs use it. But when you're putting something in your mouth to eat and it goes into your body, that is. There's a huge responsibility there, not just because I want you to your taste buds to just have explosions of flavor and make you feel amazed by our cuisine, which that's what we do, but also because it's you know I'm taking care of your health, and so so I'm thinking of all those things from the way you you use all your senses and your body, and you're involved in our restaurant. Sorry, it's so deep, but yeah, I, I take care of every centimeter in this restaurant. And we try and really think about what's going on from the music to the smell to the to the air to the warmth to the temperature to the seating the comfort on your back on your bum you know to the way you you know how easy or not your 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 knife and fork are and then of course on top of all that it's the beautiful service and then the god of all the food the drinks but tell me this thing because like an energy fizzes off you and like you're obviously your passion uh, comes very clearly emanates from you how do you recruit someone who's got that same passion so when someone turns up to work here tens of thousands of of restaurant workers in london but how do you know if someone's going to fit the the model that you're building here you start with one at a time you know my Operations director was my first hire six years ago. Her name is Raquel de Oliveira. She's Brazilian. We had an interview. I'd interviewed 20 people before her, and we clicked, we connected. I spoke to to her about my values and my vision, 
and she completely agreed and she had the same. Then my executive chef, Vitelio Reyes, he's a superstar chef that's worked for Michelin star restaurants. But you know what? Some of those Michelin star restaurants are full of bullies, full of different cultures. We talked about the vision that we wanted to establish and we shared our dreams. So suddenly it becomes not just my dream, but somebody else's dream. And it's actually somebody else's dream becomes my dream as well. And we talk about that. And my ethos, dream, values sort of adjusts. I don't let it fall by completely because I'm, I think there's a lot of healthy aspects of what we're doing, what I had at the very beginning. And so you just find people that, that relate to what you're doing and carry the same values. Sometimes they might have slightly different vision in life. But, uh, but you find out, you know, after the first week or two, if they're right or not. Do you write any of this down? Or is it, um, is it like... Of course, a... yeah. I mean, I'm there. I give an induction to every single staff member once a month uh, that is new. I talk about our values, our mission, our vision, our one-year, three-year and ten-year sort of long-term plan. Uh, some of those things evolve and change because of different circumstances but I tell them right from the beginning this is what I'm looking for and we talk about the fact that we all have an opportunity not a job it's really an opportunity to make the most of it and as we're a healthy happy and organically fast-growing company there's, there's, there's space for more creativity there's space for better salary there's space for you know new types of roles um, and uh, there's space for having a lot of fun um, above all I like to think that more than anything that we are that attracts people to come and work for us and attracts people to, to carry the ethos that we have and the culture that we have, more than anything, we're very creative. We look for solutions. We have great ideas. Uh, we, we care about each other, but we're very creative. And, and I think that, that helps, especially when you're, you're in a city like London, which likes innovation. And you talked before about the moment you accomplish your goals or those five-star ratings, the, the AA crests, it feels anticlimactic. How then do you celebrate every moment? Because, you know, can your team feel that? Yeah, I mean, we have, we have networks of communication. We have, uh, we have a weekly email out that we celebrate individual team members, whether it's their birthdays or their births of their children or whether it's a great achievement they've achieved or a new person starting. We have um, football competitions. We have uh, something called the Valuable Awards where we give out awards to um, the key people in each restaurant that carry the values that we have. And by the way, as I mentioned, you know, every year we reassess our values, ask everyone to input into those values. Um, positivity, dedication and care and going for excellence. We've got those three values and we've had them for two years now. Positivity and where we look at each, where we come into work with positivity. It doesn't mean coming in happy and jolly and going, I'm going to be very positive. You know, it means being authentic. If you've had a miserable day or you had a miserable night, put your hand up and you say, I'm feeling a bit rough, but you know what? I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to be very transparent about what's going on, but I'm going to work hard and enjoy it. Uh, dedication and care, again, being very honest with everyone and just looking after that detail, whether it's serving a customer in the right way or, or, or making sure our toilets are absolutely spotless or making sure that dish is presented perfectly and tastes perfectly with the best ingredients. And going for excellence, 
you know, we're in London, we're in the most competitive environment, the city with the best gastronomy, best restaurants in the world. We want to be the best. We were voted number six best, res best restaurant in London by Time Out magazine just a few weeks ago for ceviche in Soho. All our restaurants are Michelin Guide listed. This baby has just won, you know, first AA Rosette Award. And we want to be the best. We don't, we don't consider ourselves a Peruvian restaurants group, although our influence and our inspiration comes from Peru. We are a restaurants group. And, uh, and we're, we're also an experience group in that, in that way as well, because we work with music through our record label, with art through our art gallery at Ceviche Old Street, um, and with the charity that we work with, Amantani. So the thing that's probably the most inspiring for most people is your story, even taking apart, uh, taking aside the adversity of, of coming here at the age of 11, but your story of someone who's got a successful career then finds themselves reinventing what they do with heroic success. Would you advise anyone to do that in the same situation? And what should be... You seem to be guided by passion and the fact that you've only got one life. It's weird, you know, a few things happened with me growing up in that tough environment in Peru and arriving here and then giving a good kick in in Colville. You know, there's a lot of anger and pain that you have to live with for a long time and you sort of become fearless and you go, well, I've been through such worse times that nothing's ever going to be as bad. And it can either break you or it can and turn you into a real bastard or just say, I'm going to use that force for good. What's happened with me in the last few years, I've actually, I'm actually at peace with all that. It took a long time to be at peace, but that, I, I am very at peace with all that and, and it's made me the person I am and I'm very happy with, with all of that. And it's not driving me anymore. That is not driving me anymore. Do you think other, pain's other a motivator? I, I, Absolutely. I, I met Absolutely. someone who asks as an interview question, asks every candidate what hurt you because no, no, he, no. He, he saw that it was a characteristic. It was those people who'd had some... And Absolutely. some tragedy was their motivation. Absolutely, and whenever I, you know, and 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 that's you know, and, and for many people throughout their lives, you know, that can be it. That can be a real trigger for success. You know, it can completely break you. But there is a very small percentage that that use it for a driver. And for me, it was it was an absolute trigger for success, um, and that drove me for many years. Uh, absolutely, I totally believe that. As I matured and as I got older, I sort of realized that actually what I want is stability and contentment. And what I also want is freedom. And I also very much remember, and this is why I work with Amantani, for example. Amantani, we have, a, we have a, an educational home, a children's home in the Andes of Peru, in a very, very poor part of the Andes of Peru, for children that just have the worst opportunity in life. They're brutalized. They're sometimes raped. They're, they have very high levels of malnutrition. My grandmother was an Andina, so I never forget that. I could be one of those children, but I'm sitting here in London. My father was not wealthy, neither my mother, but I had an opportunity and I had various opportunities and I grabbed it with both my hands. Because I had those opportunities, I'm always very grateful for that and never forget that I could be one of those children. So that drives me. That's not pain, that's just gratefulness. That drives me. Freedom drives me. Uh, and remember, we're in a very capitalist country. And just remember that this is not, a lot of what we do is not, I don't believe too much, so much, in pure capitalism. There's got to be a lot of giving back. There's got to be a lot of sharing. And, you know, 
and money is overrated. So if we have that ethos, then people will follow and you'll have fun and you'll enjoy the moment. And the world is changing, as you know, and I'm sure others you know, have been on your show say that. You know, young people that work in my restaurants, they're not led by money. They're, met, they're led by purpose, by travel, by adventure. The money thing was sold to them as it was sold to me when I was 16 or 14 or 18 and sold to me as a, as a load of bull. And now people are realized, and younger people are realizing, that, that it's not about that at all. It's so anticlimactic, and, and these game shows that tell you that you can reach, reach the heights in five episodes are a load of nonsense. Um, and celebrities completely overrated because they're all messed up, because the pressure of being public life is nonsense. So they're looking for something else. And I like to think that, in a small way, the work that we do at Ceviche and Andina restaurants and through our other, other events and companies, uh, you know, we fulfill some of that. What's your ambitions? Because you've, you've achieved a, it must, you must have accomplished what you set out to do when you left music for restaurants. What's your ambition now? The, the ambition is linked to what I mentioned before. So why can't a music producer, which I was, or a music DJ, which, which I was, which I continue to be, both of those things. Why can't I be a chef? Who says I can't? Why do I have to go to a top culinary school? Who says I can't learn that by training with other chefs or by watching videos or by, or by reading an enormous amounts of books? That's what I did. I did all those things to become you know, a respected chef. Who says I can't be an art director or a film producer or a stage director? Who says? I can do all those things. I can't be a 100-meter sprinter and win the Olympics. Certainly can't. I'm 44 and there's no chance. But I can do all those other things, and why not? And I quite fancy a few of those. Uh, but right now I have a very clear mission, which I started in some way and which is evolving all the time, and that is to enrich people's lives with excellence in Peruvian food, music, arts, culture, and charity. My, my, my ambition is to continue doing that in exciting ways uh, that, make, that will make people go, wow. Because you know that the hurt, the pain, made you. It's difficult, isn't it, to synthesise that in your kids because you want to protect your kids and give your kids a happy life. But I'm pretty sure that your sense of endeavour and your sense of trying to make things work is a direct result of, you know, that miserable time you have when you're 11. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we've suffered some stuff since then. You know, I, I, I was kidnapped in Mexico and held at gunpoint for an hour. Um, you know, I've lost two children. Um, I, 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 I've suffered from other things on top of that as well that have been traumatic in my life. But... Um, the, the, the age of 11 and then moving house, that was one, one of the biggest ones. Um, but you have to recover from that. You have to find ways of, of being at peace and finding help and being open and sharing what you have inside so that you can really connect with what it is. Um, and uh, that's given me a maturity to, have a, to be a balanced parent, to be a balanced father, a caring, loving, strict-ish father that guides my children 
and makes them empowered and happy themselves to follow whatever they want. Uh, not always based on, on, on earning the, the most amount of money, but, but certainly about having a balanced, 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 happy life. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, you know, I have a phenomenal relationship with my children and with my wife. Uh, it, you know, during the setting up of our restaurants in the first couple of years, I wasn't as close and didn't, didn't spend enough time with them. Um, I wish I had, but uh, but I can't cry about it now. Um, but I but in the last couple of years, I've completely made up for that with quality time, and I've been able to balance uh, my life much better with the things that I've learned in the last couple of years. Because for me, every every year, I want to learn more about myself and more about how to be a better person. That's not much of an away day, staying in work. It's not all day either. It's only 11 till 3. Oof. It's like a long lunch. What's on your agenda? Um, this one's about team building, <laughs> trust strategies and motivational role play. What a load of hoopty. Why? Well, it is. Just a waste of money. I'm sure it could be put to better use. Like? Well... The vending machine's been stuck on Scotch broth since the Olympics. And the disabled toilet's got a crack in it. I nicked my bum twice last week. You shouldn't even be using it. Oh, come on, we've all done it. I've not. Job's worth. So from quinoa to comedy, Paul Coleman is the creator of Carshare. He told me how he manages a full-time job combined with steady writing. It's an interesting tale of sort of adapted work routines, finding your creative spark. And it's, it has a lot of resonance with what we were talking about the other day, that there's a block of creative time for all of us first thing in the morning. I chatted to him on the phone. He was in L.A. The, the phone call gets occasionally a bit bumpy, but stick with it. So I was working in about 2010, so I'd I'd done writing, script writing before that, but around 2010 I had an idea for a script that was getting quite a bit of traction, and at the time I was working for an innovation consultancy called What If, who were brilliant and really kind of very supportive, but I just knew I couldn't keep going to my boss and going, I need to go for a table read, uh, so getting the script read by actors, or I need to be on set, or this is now, we're doing casting for this. It got to a point where it's going, you're just asking too much here. And so at that point, I knew that I had to go freelance to pay the mortgage, so still do, still do the work that I was qualified to do, but also give as much effort and support as I could to the script writing to give that a fair chance, really. So I decided then to to go freelance. Once I then made the move to go freelance, it, it made me really look at my work hours, partly because I had two kind of jobs, if you like, but also because it was an opportunity for me to kind of set those ground rules. So I knew that I didn't want to do the commute to work. Um, so we decided that, so I, I run Humanize with a partner of mine, Lynn Barco, and we both decided that what we would do is we'd just cut the commute out at the start and the end of the day. So our office hours don't kick in till 10, which doesn't mean we're not doing any work. It just means that what we're doing instead is we're, we're working from home and then jumping in the car when all the traffic's gone. And we do the same at the end of the day. So we, And we actually get more work done because we've changed those work hours. But also selfishly for me, it means that I can concentrate on my right when there's no interruptions from email and telephone call. 
course. So I get a good couple of hours each day writing stuff. And what I tend to do is I, I spend a couple of hours at the start of the day to kind of get my writing done. It's, it's a time I find that I'm most creative at that point, but it also it's a time when there's less interruptions. So I'm not, the phone isn't constantly going, the emails aren't constantly pinging in. So I can really concentrate and have that deep thinking at that time of day and, and really focus on that, on that writing time. But also means that during the day, at the back of my head, the stuff that I've written is kind of swimming around a little bit. So when I get to it again, the following day, I've had time to kind of go back in and add new layers to that or change a joke or change a character. It just means it's had time to ferment within that world. It took me a while to work out that that was the best time of day for me because I, I naturally fell into that space of going, after I've finished my day's work, I'll have my evening meal and then I'll turn the computer on and start writing. And, and you force yourself to do it, but it didn't feel natural. and It didn't feel very comfortable at that time. It felt like it was a slog and it shouldn't have been a slog because I write because I enjoy writing. Whereas now finding doing it at the start of the day, that slog has gone and it's much more something that I look forward to doing. Humanize is an insight and innovation consultancy. So we work across the globe on all kinds of different projects, working for people like Costa and Pepsi and Penguin Random House, all big companies, but they come to us with lots of different challenges and we try and put fresh eyes on that. So the humanized bit is kind of put human approach to that to make it much more, much more empathy within that, much more authentic. So it doesn't feel like it's just somebody at the head of a company deciding uh, we're, we're going to make our logo pink because we think that's going to work and we're going to launch this product because I think there's something in this. We're trying to add the consumer's voice very much in, into that world. And, and obviously you're an amazingly successful writer, Paul. Why would you not be a full-time writer? Because you can't, you just can't rely on the gigs coming. So even with having car share and being relatively successful as a, as a TV programme in the UK, and it does open lots more doors, but there's only so much space on TV for so many half hours or hours programmes. So you're, you're constantly having that battle to go, kind of get the next thing away? Is somebody going to commission the next script or pay me to write a script? And so you do, you've no guarantee that work's going to come. But I also, if I'm really honest, I really enjoy my humanised work. I really enjoy being creative in other people's worlds and putting fresh eyes onto and different perspectives onto worlds that I'm not, you know, I'm not, I've not worked in those worlds for forever. So I've worked in pharmaceutical, in banking. I've never worked in those worlds apart from as a consultant. But it's really nice to step in and be able to have a point of view within that and offer some fresh thinking for them. So if you look at someone like Victoria Wood, I'm a massive fan of Victoria Wood. So Victoria Wood grounded most of her things, if not all of her things, in real life. So she stayed close to that, to those worlds. So she had some knack of being able to either pick up conversations or remember you know, relatives that she'd had. She had a knack of doing that. For me, I feel like I need to immerse myself in lots of different worlds to kind of pull from those places. If I just sat in front of a computer at home, I'd really struggle to go, where am I getting inspiration from? Who am I basing this character on? What would this character do in this situation? I feel like I need to experience that and having another job helps me get closer to that. Did you know Peter Kay before? Yes, I've written with Peter um, before, so I First did stuff, script edited for Max and Paddy for Channel 4, and then Peter and I wrote um, Britain's Got the Pop Factor. But with, with Karsha, it was, it was a thing of me going, actually, can I do something without doing something with Peter, which is hilarious. Um, and then went and said, before I send this in, took it to Peter, said, we have a read of this and just make sure I'm not making a fool of myself. And he came back and went, I really like it. I'd like to be in it. So <laughs> my plan of doing something separate has now become Peter's Karsha, which is hilarious. Some of the best stuff in it is the radio ads. I mean, you know that already. But the radio ads are just such genius. 
Who's in the toaster is back tomorrow. You know, spending time in my garden reminds me of the cycle of life. Birds, bees, butterflies, foxes. Nothing lasts forever. And that's why I called Arthur Whelan & Co. It's not always easy thinking about what will happen after you're gone. But by paying just a small amount each month, you can be assured of a lump sum to be enjoyed by your family when you're just a photograph in a frame. Call 08081 570 570 for a free, no-obligation quote. Arthur Whelan, for when tomorrow doesn't come. I mean, I adore it. I saw that they were talking about it was going to come to an end, and I just thought, oh, wow, that'd be such a tragedy. It's such a beautiful format. I know, it's really tempting, to be honest with you, Bruce. It's really tempting to just go, oh, we could just make this run and run, because this is, you know, as Lazo was saying earlier, it's hard to get things away, and this is something we've got away, and it's got traction. But you've also got to pull yourself away from that and go, well, what about the story? And can we really stretch this out to have new scenarios for two people in a car, which is already very restrictive as it is, and you, I suddenly think if we get to series three and four, and you suddenly go, how many things can happen in this car? What's happening <laughs> now? The wheels on off, you know, the lights aren't working. What, where are we going to go with that? You start running out of ideas for it. And I think then the audience would go, you should have stopped this at the end of season two. And we've, we've kind of made that decision for them. So when we maybe we've made the wrong decision, but we'll, 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 we may live to regret it in a few years' time when there's no more work. <laughs> and we're desperate to get it back. <laughs> we shall see. And, and so how do you choose what are writing days and how do you choose what are or writing mornings and, and commute mornings? So you, you've got rid of your commute. Sometimes you're writing in the morning. Sometimes you're doing, what, work stuff? Really, it's kind of the pressures that come in externally that kind of dictate that a little bit. And, and sometimes it's a little frustrating where you go, I'm really in the mood. I've got a really good idea. I could just do this. But unfortunately, you know, the, the guys that are paying the bills are asking you to do other things. So you, you've just got to then make some very quick scribbled notes and crack on with the work that you're being paid to do. But equally, some mornings I'm kind of thinking I was supposed to do writing, but I've, I've, we're in the middle of this project for a big client and suddenly something's coming in my mind and thinking, actually, I need to get that down. So, it's, But because I'm running the business, I can make those decisions myself. So I know I'm managing myself because not somebody above me managing me and micromanaging me to go, we need you in at these hours, we need you in these meetings, we need you presenting this back. I know what I need to do. If I don't deliver on either of those worlds, then it's me that gets the blame for that. It comes all boils down to me. And all the people that work for us as well in Humanise, we don't micromanage those guys. We just go, you have got this task to do. And if you don't come back and having succeeded on your task list, then it, it falls at your door. Come to us for support, but don't expect us to be babysitting you or monitoring everything you're doing. And, and that's got to work for me as well. If I've said I'm going to have a script in for X date or I've said to a client, we're going to deliver back on the insight that we've been gathering by this day, I've got to do that. There's nobody else there to pick up the pieces, really. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Finally, Lisa Unwin. And, and Lisa really helped challenge my preconceptions about mums and returning to work. There's an interesting thing that I'd taken on board in Cheryl Sandberg's book that, you know, it's it's a prejudice that men don't have to suffer, that when women go off to have a baby, people ask them the question, will you come back? And Cheryl's point is that shouldn't even be a question. It should just be assumed that women's careers are as important as men's. And I guess the interesting thing Lisa made me reappraise in myself is that, no, even that is a decision forced upon you by someone else. People should feel free. If they want to have five years career break, they should feel free. But that doesn't mean that they return any less formidably capable than they left. Here's Lisa. Lisa's the founder of She's Back, which is an organisation which helps bring mums back into the workplace. So I had um, a 20-year career as a first as a management consultant, then as director of brand and comms for Deloitte at the end. And I gave it all up when my kids were four and six. My nanny resigned, couldn't hold down a full-time job and look after them. And the school weeks are so short, school holidays are so long. I I just gave up, but nobody. So you got through the first four I years. I got through the oh, yes, because six I, years. because then before school started. I could afford to pay for a full-time nanny, uh, and I worked four days a week, so that was all fine. But then she left, I didn't get a promotion I was expecting, and I realised they were both going to be at school, and school what, school happens 36 weeks a year. My job was eight till six, school days at nine till three, and I just couldn't figure out how to make it all work. So I gave up, but nobody told me that my four-year-old and six-year-old would not be four and six forever. And so I made this decision there and then about what to do in the immediate short term and that was to give up work. Now, I would never advise anybody to do that looking back because lives are very long and complex and I soon found myself with a 12-year-old and 10-year-old thinking, what am I going to do for the next 20 years? Because I had 20 years behind me but I knew that I'd got 20 years ahead where I could do something useful, make a difference, earn some money and I hadn't got a plan. So that's, that's why I set up She's Back because I thought there's tons of women in this situation um, you know, they've been accountants, lawyers, bankers, you name it, every single profession that we come across. Because what you said there is sort of reminiscent, not that it, it sh- she should be an authority on it, but Cheryl Sandberg mm. says, you know, one of the worst things we do is we ask this question, are you going back to work? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's almost like, yeah. because it's not, it's not predetermined that women mm. will return yeah. to work. And she also says that women's careers are more like jungle gyms than career ladders. And I think... I, in an ideal world, that should be true. You should be able to step back, take a slightly stress, less stressful role, do some part-time work for a while, and then step back on again, which is what she means by 
by jungle gyms, but big organisations don't work like that. You know, they assume that if you've not made it by 40, say, then you've not got much potential. And actually, that's just not the case. I've got, yeah, right. So even that is another way that we blame women, isn't it? So effectively, look, if a woman takes time out or doesn't take time out, then look, both of those decisions yeah. are valid. Yeah. Right, okay, in my head, right, okay, that's, that's a good clarification. Both those decisions are valid. But it's just another example where the world of work doesn't permit that non-linear. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. And it's also fair. I think it's very ageist as well. In fact, I was at a, um, a big consulting firm recently, and um, they had recognised they don't have enough female partners. So they come up with this great idea, and I was about to hear this great idea, and I thought they were going to say, so we're going to make sure that you can make partner at 35, 40, 45, 50. It's not going to be an age thing. What they actually said was, we've realised we've not got enough women partners, so we're going to reduce the age at which we try and get people through to partner, meaning start about 36, get you through at 38. Well, um, a lot of women between the ages of 36 and 38, if they haven't got young children, they're often starting to think about young children. So the thought of trying to get on a partner track and, um, and deal with having children or not is just impossible. So it was just a complete clash of uh, you know, the assumptions about what's going on in somebody's life. And, do you think the themes of sexism at work are interwoven with ageism at work? I think it, I think they are interwoven. I've, I've met a couple of women recently. Um, one of them managed a two billion pound for Diffid. Another one was a chemist at Dow Chemical who'd managed multiple international product launches. Absolutely amazing, fantastic women. But they had both taken about a six year break. So they're now 45, 46, trying to get back into work. And when people look at their CV, they they read it chronologically from now to the start of their career. I mean, they just see there's somebody who's not done very much work for the last five or six years, done a bit of part-time work, and doesn't realise that actually, they don't realise that the wealth of experience that comes behind that. And also they look at the age and think, well, not much in them. Mm. And yet, they've probably got more energy than they had in their 30s because they're not bringing up young children. So talk about She's Back. So, so She's Back seems to me half commercial endeavour, half campaigning. So talk me through how it works. Well, the bit, I suppose the bit that we enjoy the most is the campaigning. My business partner and I um, really love writing. Um, We'd like to think that we we write in in plain language, hate the term diversity, hate the words gender equality, just because they turn people off. I'd rather say that work is not fair work is missing out on amazing talent because they're ignoring these women who've got fantastic skills. So so the campaigning is really important. We also, uh, there's a commercial essence to what we do also. We, we advise organisations on how not to lose so many women in the first place and how to get them back if they see the light. And we also do a lot of support to women to enable them to get back to successful careers. Two or three things have happened in the last six weeks that give me hope. And I think partly because of my own background, um, I've been talking to big organisations typically. But recently, two or three smaller organisations have come to me. So one's a great example, Tech Startup, which is now on its third round of funding based in East London. Um, They've got 14 people and they came to me and said, look, we need somebody to help us run our business operations. It's like a COO role, but we're not big enough for that yet. We need something that's really cost effective. So we really want an adult who we don't have to handhold. We think one of your women might be ideal because it's a part-time role, they only have to come into the office one day a week, we'll pay fairly, 
Um, anyway, to cut a very long story short, we found a person who was delighted to go back and do that role. Another example was another small organisation wanting somebody to help rebrand and really th help them think about their PR strategy. They don't want to pay somebody full time if they don't have to. So it's a great opportunity for a for a woman who's returning. I saw a brilliant I idea for a business, and, and in fact, the, the company it was it was Crowd uh, C R O U D, and they started they've evolved their business because they've been so successful. But they started off they were Google advertising, Google yeah. search advertising done by returning mums from home. And they thought, you know, effectively, we've got these highly mm. skilled people who've left the workplace, who if they can elect to work yep. eight hours a week, yep. a time that suits them, yep. they're like a yep. highly motivated, Absolutely. very willing yeah. workforce. Yeah. And, very, and, you know, when women do go back to work, they've really had to think about it. You have to, it's not like they've been doing nothing all day. So they have to find some solutions to do the stuff that they were doing before. So consequently, they really are motivated and, and keen. And there are, there are different business models setting up to do just that, to tap into that, um, that talent. And it's, to me, it's the big organisations that are missing out here because they don't get it. It strikes me that it's those scale recruiters, it's the people who are hiring 200 people a year that are like the biggest potential change. But it's interesting that you said it's small firms that seem to be most willing. I think small firms are most willing because the big recruiters, what they've done is they, the big organisation, they outsource their recruitment to a recruiter who sits in their business. And because it's a scale model, they have to use technology. So they use something called an applicant tracking system. But applicant tracking systems have to weed out CVs so that you only pair of human eyes only have to see a small number yeah. and if you give them a CV with a gap on it or a funny looking career for the last five or six years you're going to get thrown out so women's CVs are not getting through those processes right okay so although they've got the volume you'd think they'd be able to accommodate more variety in the workforce actually the way they go about it is the opposite oh got it because they're filtering people at scale yeah. something that doesn't look like in the last five years yeah. they've been doing it yeah. oh right okay Oh, so it's the opposite. It's completely the opposite. You started off. You you had a survey yeah. that you were you were looking into the issue. What did the survey find? The survey found that um, eighty four percent of women who'd taken a career break said they wanted to go back. We were quite surprised at that number. I thought it was high, but I didn't know it was going to be that high. So that was that was the first surprise. The second thing was that the survey covered women uh, in diverse industries, ranging from advertising to law to banking. But the results were exactly the same across all sectors that we looked at, which was a bit surprising. And the biggest issue that women have returning is flexibility, i.e. they don't believe that work is set up to offer them the flexibility that they need, which is madness yeah. in 2017. And they, you know, which is why I think smaller organisations get it more, because they have to be flexible. If you've got a startup, the last thing you want to do is build a swanky office that everybody can go to from Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, because it's too expensive. So you need people who are going to be working flexibly, and, and, and you'll find one of your podcasts was about the results or results mm. on the work environment. They've, they can't afford to pay people for input. They need to focus on output, mm. which is women. That's what they want to be judged on. Work has definitely changed over the last 8 to 10 years, but the biggest thing that's happened, I think is the digital economy, that, that digital revolution, that's what's changed the most. So I was director of brand and comms, but wouldn't, didn't know how to use Twitter when I set up this business because it hadn't really taken hold. Um, but one of the things I've learned is that you can pretty much get a YouTube video on everything. So 
one I, I wanted to hire a social media manager for She's Back, but we just couldn't afford it. Um, and when I recognised I couldn't afford it, I got myself a laptop and a, my iPad and my phone and went on YouTube to work out how to use Hootsuite so that I could schedule my tweets and social media posts in advance. You can learn anything. And I thought, you know, think of myself as being technologically pretty and illiterate. The thing that I've seen work really well when, when women are going back into the larger organisations is giving them um, a buddy who's younger, who's a different generation. And I think that, that can work well both ways. Because um, whilst women are, yeah, they might lack a bit of confidence in how to use um, social media, for example, or some of the social media tools or technology, they're actually pretty confident at dealing with difficult conversations. They're not going to be phased at having to go into a client situation that's tricky because they've dealt with kids. You know, they're, they're, they're offering something back as well that maybe the younger generation doesn't have. So that can work quite well if you buddy up. Look, you know, you're, you're right at the start. You've set yeah. this up. You're trying. You're on a mission, yeah. but you also think actually you're bringing high quality returners to work. Yeah. What's the best thing that someone could do? Presumably, it's an organisation contacting you saying, yeah. "I'm going to take a return." Absolutely, um, an organisation contacting us saying, "Telling us what work needs to be done." Not job. We don't need a detailed job description because then nonsense. We need somebody saying, "I've got this work that needs to be done, and I'm open to having somebody come join my team who's a returner." And I am absolutely confident that a woman who's returning will provide a lot of something, something that that team doesn't already have. So, can I go back to my um, go back to my startup example? I met the CEO of this startup who was taking a woman return for, for a coffee. I uh, asked him why he was particularly interested in having a woman on the team. Uh, it was just a totally open question, didn't know what he was going to say. And he said, well, because we're intending to grow and we're going to continue to need to recruit people. And if I don't have another woman on the team soon, some of the best candidates will be women and they won't join me because they'll look around and they'll see an office full of blokes and they won't want to work here. So that's why I went, a woman. And I thought, great, yeah. And it's more fun. I said earlier, I don't like the word diversity. I think people have, they've, they've taken it and, and use it with abandon. Boards are saying they aim to have 30% of women on boards because they want a more diverse team. The point about diversity is that you need people coming with different backgrounds, different skills, different perspectives. If you end up with a board of, say, 10 people who've had exactly the same career trajectory, working in similar organisations, never taking a break, never doing anything else. It doesn't matter whether they're 50% men and 50% women. That's not really going to be diverse if they've all had the same experience. And the points about women who've taken a break, or anybody who's done, it can be men who've done something different, is that that different experience is what adds to the diversity of the conversation. It. It's interesting that is, but what you say there, because I did an issue, an episode on Lean In, mm -hmm. and Dawn Foster, yeah, and Dawn Foster talked about they're called golden skirts, and it's effectively mm. you're hiring in yeah. a tokenistic yeah. woman yeah. to the board who yeah. basically acts and behaves like mm. a man. I feel personally that I would be so much more effective now if I went back to work than if I went back to doing a proper job rather than this. Because I've had different experience, you know. Um, whereas I could have stayed as director of brand and comms at Deloitte and I could maybe have moved from there to be brand and comms at Ernst & Young or, or Accenture and that just moving from one job to the same job somewhere else isn't going to make me necessarily more rounded. It's having a different experience, I think, that makes you think differently. Yeah. We, we write a lot of blogs, um, which we get published in Strategy and Business, but I also write them on LinkedIn. And it's funny when you start writing. It's like when you start... Twitter with no followers and you think who's ever going to read this and the same with LinkedIn but anyway 
We've, I think our most popular post has been one called um, Women Play the Long Game, Treat Motherhood and Work Like a Game of Chess. And if there was one message I wanted to get out to women, it's to, to just to think like that, to, to recognise that lives are complex and messy and long, and it's tough. And so think like a chess master. Plan three or four moves ahead. Um, you might have to give up some pieces in the short term, like taking a part-time role, accepting you're not going to get promoted, not being able to take a relocation because you've got ties. That's fine, as long as you're also thinking about the longer term and what can you do to make sure that your next move is going to move you forwards. And it takes some planning and it takes some cunning, um, but I think women need to take responsibility for that. Feels to me, I mean, like I've I've had an epiphany just in, in this discussion here because, like, I was resolute that women should return to work, and actually, broadly, what we're saying is people should be free to do what's right for the most to fulfil their yeah. life, mm-hmm. and the the rest of people in work need to have a more open mind to what good yeah. at work yeah. looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't regret at all taking six years out of my career to look after my kids. I have a fabulous relationship with my daughter and my son. So I don't regret that at all. Um, and I am, at the same time, I'm really pleased that I'm working again. Partly as a mother of daughters, you know, I, I want her to know that I go to work and you don't you know, sit at home all day. Um, and, and to my son, I want them to know that we all have choices to make at different points in time and they'll, you know, they're going to have to navigate life as well. Gone are the days when we'll all start work at 21 and retire at 55. That's not how it is for any of us. So if I can do something to influence that for them, then so much the better. Thanks for listening today. Some real people for a change. I know quite often I've always got academics or experts on. Like you see, I was interested in these stories that that real people in work could bring. Thank you to Paul. Thank you to Martin. Thank you to Lisa for all the things they brought. You can tweet me. And if you search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, that's probably the best place to find me. Add me on LinkedIn. Maybe a review. Yes, a review on Apple Podcast Store, like any sane person would choose to do. Who on earth leaves reviews on the Apple Podcast Store? But Apple believe that that's the surest way to determine which are the best podcasts and who are we to argue. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. There's another episode next week, which is about how we can all change our routines and how we can bring more flexibility to work. Find all of this and more on our website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. Thank you for listening. I love you so much. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.